Hello friends, this is Ken Aldrich, Head of School, and in this episode of the Quaker Matters podcast, we get to hear from Omar Khan, who currently serves as the Enterprise Chief Scientific Officer and Vice President of Research Administration and Scientific Affairs at Christiana Care. Omar is a graduate, class of 1990, he's a parent of a graduate, and a former trustee here at Friends. During this engaging conversation, you'll get to hear Omar's perspectives on the type of place that Wilmington Friends is and how the expression, let your life speak, left an indelible mark on Omar and how he uses that in his daily life. Enjoy. And those core values, frankly, are informed by, in my case, much of you know how I grew up and, and my formative years in many ways. And when you go to a place like Friends, it's not just a generic uh, institute of education. It is a place of purpose. It's a place, place of values. Uh, it's a place of openness as a place of kindness. And those are as near universal as it gets. And I've always tried to hold true to those values. another episode of the Quaker Matters podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Omar Khan, Wilmington Friends School class of 1990. Dr. Khan is the Enterprise Chief Scientific Officer and Vice President of Research Administration and Scientific Affairs at Christiana Care. Dr. Khan, how are you? I am well, thank you, Jake, and a very good morning to you. How are things with you? I am doing okay and excited to learn a little bit more about you and your journey at Friends, but also medicine as well. Could you just first tell me when you were first introduced to Wilmington Friends? Sure. I think the story goes back quite a ways. And of course, uh, Wilmington Friends has a long and storied history in the community and in the state of Delaware as the oldest institute of education. But the story really goes back to when my uncle settled here uh, in the area in in Wilmington. And he uh, is a physician. He was a practicing physician until very recently. Uh, And as many generations of Delawareans had got to know him, he retired last year and he was the longest uh, practicing primary care physician in Newcastle County, uh, which was uh, quite quite wonderful to kind of grow up with that. So I kind of grew up with with a milieu of lots of folks who were connected with Wilmington Friends. And I myself had, um, you know, kind of a, uh, a peripatetic childhood, uh, moved around uh, all, uh, all different places um, and lived in, uh, lived in Kuwait and lived in Pakistan and eventually moved to, uh, to, to Delaware uh, because that's really where we had kind of a, a core focus on some family, which is really around my, my uncle. And, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, which schools would be kind of a good fit uh, for, for myself. And I remember a conversation around the, around the dinner table, and I had always heard about Wilmington Friends. And as most people who aren't as familiar with uh, Quaker philosophy, Quaker education, um, one of the folks at the table mentioned that it's a very different kind of school. And I think the exact term that they used was, which I still use once in a while, is it's the unprivate private school. 
if that makes sense. And I, 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 I was intrigued by that, even as a, even as a young, younger person. And I think my, my family was as well. So, you know, we decided to, uh, you know, kind of take a, take a closer look in high school and um, something about, something about the philosophy of education, I think really resonated with my family and with myself. I think the egalitarian aspect of education, the fact that you really were free to be who you wanted to be, but could also maximize your potential. And I think that was that was really exciting. And again, you know, we might get to this later, but, uh, you know, much of that story came full circle when, you know, when my own son went there as well. But, uh, you know, it was kind of a an introduction based on many common friends, colleagues, eventually my work colleagues as well, because I came back to Delaware to practice. Uh, so it was a it was a long-winded introduction to uh, to Wilmington Friends. I guess I'm curious, Dr. Khan, in what ways you might still feel connected to Friends, knowing that you graduated from high school 33 years ago, but you also had the experience of having a child go through Wilmington Friends School as well. So in a way, you also get to share that experience. So yeah, I guess to sort of wrap that up is in what ways might you still feel connected to friends today? Sure. Thank you, Jake. That's a great question. And I think just like the philosophy of the school, I think the connections go so much uh, so much deeper than than just on the surface. And I guess I think one of the more profound connections I feel is by simply the attitude of, of let your life speak. I don't know that if a, a day passes that I don't think about that. And I don't know if that a week passes that I don't actually say to somebody. And usually it's in the context of a conversation. It's in the context of how should we deal with change? How should we take better care of our patients? How should we better take better care of ourselves? How do we live our most authentic lives is really the question that folks are asking, I think. And I'm lucky enough to be in a place where we get to take care of patients. Uh, as you know, I work for Christiana Care. Our, our job is to take care of our community and our patients, just like all the other you know wonderful health, nonprofit health systems in Delaware. And, um, you know, but it's also a time of change. And I reflect back to the core values that I have, and I reflect on those with my colleagues and what core values they have. And that informs how we get through change. And those core values, frankly, are informed by, in my case, much of you know how I grew up and, and my formative years in many ways. And when you go to a place like Friends, it's not just a generic uh, institute of education. It is a place of purpose. It's a place, place of values. Uh, it's a place of openness as a place of kindness. And those are as near universal as it gets. And I've always tried to hold true to those values. So in that way, I think I remain connected to the philosophy that I think Wilmington Friends was founded on. You can see that in the gym when you walk in. And um, you can see that permeate throughout the school. So I think in that way, it's, a, it's probably the philosophical connection, the most important one. But there are other practical ways as well in which you know I've remained connected. There's probably not a week that I'd don't drive by the school, by the campus itself. Um, there are friends and colleagues of mine who I, I work with and I'm connected to um, who were in my class or in classes above or below whom I connect with on a, on a routine basis, almost on a weekly basis in the course of work. And inevitably something comes up where we talk about Wilmington Friends. 
I was at um, uh, I was at an, a meeting just two nights ago. It was the annual meeting of the Delaware Academy of Medicine and Delaware Public Health Association. It's a group that I've served as president of, and um, uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful dinner. Uh, and I'm no longer the president. I'm on the on on the board, but we got to welcome some wonderful folks. But around me. Uh, the executive director of the academy, Tim Gibbs, he's an alumnus of the school. We've always talked about uh, talked about our common shared uh, shared values, and him being Quaker himself can educate me about uh, much of that philosophy at a much deeper level than than myself as a non Quaker. Uh, we're talking with uh, we had colleagues in the audience. Uh, my uncle was there, who uh, who, I, who I just referenced. He was there at at my table. Um, we had other colleagues at the table who were actually at my graduation when I graduated from Friends in 1990. And um, I, you know, occasionally remind my my senior medical colleagues of that. I was like, you know, you were at my at my graduation. And we, I have the privilege now of working with you, or, for example, of taking care of some of these folks as as my patients. So the connection with the place like Friends, Friends has always punched above its weight class. Does that make sense? And I think the influence that it has is not the kind that some other places may boast of in terms of we have this degree of achievers and classic achievers in, in the sense of uh, academic or career achievements. We have more than our share of those, I, I believe, but that's not the metric by which Friends measures a success, not for me at least. It's that we have educated generations of folks who have tried to live authentic lives and who have done the right thing and who have frankly tried to influence the world to be a better place. And for all of the us in healthcare, I think there's no better place to be. And certainly with my son having gone to school there and myself having had the honor of serving on the board of Wilmington Friends um, during the time he was in school and after, I think it's, you know, so many connections that that still continue and a very small way for me to give back as well. Who for you was that one teacher, that one coach that made a significant impact during your time at Wilmington Friends by really letting their life speak? I don't know if there's a teacher I had at Friends, frankly, Jake, who didn't embody that. But there's always those who influence us more than others. And whether due to personal connection or their manner or how they interact with you, I have to say my experience there was, I think, universally positive with speakers, who, uh, teachers who did indeed let their life speak and who were, who were wonderful and caring educators. Uh, Mr. Brown, later Dr. Brown, uh, Carrie Brown, was an English teacher. And I've always had uh, an appreciation for, if not a talent for, writing and literature. And um, Mr. Brown, Dr. Brown later on, uh, Kerry, he was a, a wonderful teacher. Uh, he was inspiring. He engaged his students. It's interesting that Dead Poet Society, as you know, was filmed partly at Friends. Um, and some of the characteristics of the Robin William character but in a much more real way of, ins of inspiring students. I think Dr. Brown really you know, embodied that spirit. It's interesting, his son, Matt, was in my class as well when we graduated. Um, so he was certainly one of those folks that, that was inspiring. I worked in the Whittier when I was there, and um, uh, our newspaper advisor, Terry McGuire, was a wonderful person, really loved interacting with him. And I get to see him around here and there, and I've gotten to see him around here and there as well. That was wonderful. There have been just so many folks, you spoke about athletics. Well, in one case, the athletics and the academics overlap nicely because, because Mr. Kittle, uh, Dick Kittle, 
who was an athletics uh, coach as well. He was also our history teacher that year. And um, it he had a unique style of teaching history. And um, it was uh, uh, quite remarkable. Uh, sometimes whether he was calling out football plays or you know, teaching us about Justice John Marshall wasn't quite clear. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And because I was into cars as well, still am, um, one of the cars we featured in, in one of our, my columns um, in the Whittier was one of one of his cars. He was a big Subaru fan. He called it his Rue, uh, the car that he uh, he would he would drive daily. We had a lot of fun with that. Miss Maggie Messinger, at that point, Miss Maggie Zekman, uh, she was the uh, college guidance counselor, and she and I had many wonderful conversations. Uh, but um, you know, she was she was a very smart woman and uh, great great teacher, great uh, academician. But I have to say, she had the one major lapse in judgment of actually letting me drive her brand new car once. And uh, she had just gotten a brand new Mazda Miata, if you remember when those first came out. Those were around 1989, 1990. So, you know, nice uh, little red convertible. And uh, so, you know, this um, high school senior who at that point, uh, or, you know, may or may not have had his license at that point. I'm not sure the statute of limitations has expired on that, so I'll be careful. But uh, who, who may or may not have had his full license at that point suggested to Miss Sekman that, um, uh, you know, maybe I should test drive your car, maybe I could drive your car around the, around the block here. And uh, like I said, in a in a supreme lack of judgment, probably because I ran the Friends Car Club and thought she thought, ah, this guy's probably okay. She's like, uh, okay, sure, that sounds fine. And so I, I I knew I was the first student and probably only the second person to drive her brand new Mazda Miata around around the block in Alapocas. So um, there were just some you know just a few of the of the very many you know warm memories I have of uh, of our educators and and colleagues there. You have already highlighted so many wonderful moments that you had as both a student and parent at Friends and your general fondness for the place. I guess I was just wondering if there was one moment in particular that really stands out and encapsulates your experience at Friends. Again, I think there have been so very many, but I can certainly highlight a highlight a few and some of those moments have taken maybe decades in the making and they've been some remarkable moments of connection which is really speaks i think to how integrated into the community wilmington friends is and how much influence it has in people's lives so just this um small moment i was sitting in the library and i was reading a magazine and i was of course reading a car magazine um and uh, there was a there was an ad in the car magazine um, about at that point happened to be an, an Audi, which had a four wheel drive system where basically they were exaggerating the fact that it can go straight up a wall, 90 degrees up a wall. And uh, this, this guy sort of, you know, walking behind me and uh, kind of leans over and says, they can't really do that, you know. And I was like, who is this guy? And I looked around and saw this uh, uh, tall fellow behind me who was a, uh, you know, and he introduced himself. I was like, hey, I, I'm Jeff. Like, okay, that's cool. And uh, that that man was Jeff Jeff Nesnow. Uh He's one of my best friends. He graduated a couple of years uh, after me. He was a sophomore at that time, and I was a senior. And um, that moment for me encapsulated a lot of what friends means. It's about meeting people. It's about having. It's about having the, you know, remember as as a as a as a kid essentially. It's really tough to come out of your shell. It's really tough to reach out and establish genuine, authentic connection. Even as adults, it's not easy. But as kids, it's, it's it's tough. And so having authentic connections with peers and others your age 
is a is a difficult thing to do. And I think friends, more so than many other educational institutions, encouraged authentic connections. From that grew a lifelong friendship. Um, I saw Jeff last weekend. Uh, he still lives uh, not very far from here. I've gotten to know his his family. Um, his late mother, who was a wonderful person, was has also been the realtor for a couple of our homes that we bought over the years when we moved back to the to the area. And um, you know, it's just been a that's kind of the arc of how these connections form out of micro moments. But those micro moments are facilitated in an environment of um, openness, of genuineness, of kindness, and sincerity in an educational institution of exploration. And I think that's really that's really wonderful. Uh, a somewhat related piece to that, which isn't just one moment, but it's several moments strung together. My art teacher at that time was Miss Cynthia Stanmello, and uh, she was wonderful. She actually said. Um, something very kind to me. Uh, she said, you should really think about you know, doing this doing this as, as a career and think about how this impacts, uh, how you could make this into something you really wind up doing. I've always liked drawing. But you know, I like drawing cars, of course. And so for my senior art project, I chose a somewhat unconventional uh, idea that I wanted to draw an art project of a car. And shockingly enough, you know, this is the thing about friends. Shockingly enough, people kind of let you explore things as long as it's educational and, and safe and interesting and innovative, it could push the boundaries. But she did let me design. She said, but it has to be a real three-dimensional study of a car like a car designer would do. I guess, ma'am. So that's <clears throat> that's what I did. She told me that I saw her a few years ago that she still had it somewhere. Um, fast forward to, you know, um, 20 some years in the future. And my son, of course, has her as his art teacher as, as well. And of course, she recognize him uh, you know there are not a lot of people with the last name same last name around and she's like is your dad you know so and so and of course uh, you know there was a nice connection there but in a similar vein i got to be a mentor for her daughter who was entering the field of medicine and she got to work with me at christiana care and she wound up going into the same field as myself into family medicine to primary care and she's a wonderful and accomplished young physician in her own right so um that's not one moment but it's a kind of friends moment that doesn't take a, it doesn't happen in an instant. It can take decades, the arc to develop. But again, with a school of such a long and storied history, it makes sense, right? That these moments aren't just encapsulated in a, in a, in a second. They take decades sometimes to fully actualize. At the start of the podcast, you mentioned your uncle and his influence in your family's decision to move to Delaware, but also your interest in medicine and how he was somebody that you looked up to. So I just wanted to see and ask, when was it in your life that you knew that the field of medicine was something that you wanted to pursue? Now, I didn't uh, think you would uh, ask that question, but it so happens. And for the folks who are listening, they probably won't be able to see much of this unless we, we put this up. But I, I'm, I'm holding up a, a, a photograph here of a of maybe a four-year-old with uh, with a with a doctor's kit, um, kind of outfitted outfitted on them. Interestingly, that photo is right next to another maybe three-year-old from much much later, approximately you know, forty years later, uh, who has a similar kit. Who's one of them, of course, is my son, and the other one is myself. Uh, the one from myself is from from the the mid or late seventies, sometime. That was uh, something my my uncle got me as a gift. Uh, my dad was posted in Kuwait at that time uh, with the military, and my uncle was visiting, and he got me that for the very first time. 
And that doctor's kit was probably my first exposure to the world of medicine as a, you know, whatever, as a three or four year old. So um, I think I seriously considered medicine as a career. I, I think it was somewhere around maybe, you know, nine, 10, 11, somewhere around there. And I knew at that age that I wanted to do something interesting and fun and with my hands. But frankly, I wanted also to work in a field which helped people. And it sounds almost naive and cliche to say that at this point. You know, why do you go into medicine? Well, to help people. But, you know, there's so many of us who are physicians who actually hew very closely to that philosophy. We go in it to help people. And I would, in fact, argue that if we ever forget that, then, you know, we've perhaps lost sight of why we do this to begin with. Yes, it is an idealistic statement. It's an idealistic field. But we have we practice it with that idealism, at least those of us who come to it from that perspective. So that was kind of the genesis, I think, of just planting that seed in my brain. But somewhere, I think, around 10, 11 or so, I really thought more seriously about it, not spoke to my parents about it. My my parents, interestingly, you know, they always they encouraged me to, in fact, you know, almost do the opposite. Uh, this how hard my uncle worked when he set up practice in, in Wilmington. He was in practice in Wilmington for nearly 50 years in North Wilmington. And, uh, you know, the call schedule, the constant getting paid, um, the going into the hospital to admit patients, coming back to the office, going to the nursing home. He was a complete, you know, he was a general internist by by training, um, but he was really was a complete, you know, family physician. He took care of generations of folks and he followed them from, from place to place, essentially, wherever they happened to get admitted to. He did house calls as well, took me along with him to house calls. So that was a major influence, I think. Um, at that young age, between the ages of, maybe even six through, you know, 12, 13, um, wherever we happen to be in the world, wherever my parents happen to be, typically in the summertime, I'd be in North Wilmington with my uncle. Uh, usually it would be my grandmother and and me visiting for the summer and, and hang out. So it was always, always home for me in that regard. But, you know, um, he would take me around with him. He was, I got to see uh, the old Wilmington hospital, the old, uh, I, I remember when Christiana hospital was built and when that was the medical center of Delaware. And I remember St. You know, Francis Hospital and the nursing homes and going to patients' homes who welcomed him in because he was their doctor and he had his black bag with him. And it sounds um, almost archaic at this point, but it's not archaic. I still stop by my patients' homes to see them if they if they need me to. I don't get to practice clinical medicine as much as, uh, as before because of my other responsibilities, which also involve taking care of people, but at a different level, perhaps. But uh, I will still stop by a patient's home if they need me to for for something, and uh, that's the essence of I think being a being a physician. So that 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 seed was sown pretty early on. Is that what interested you most about becoming a family physician? I mean, obviously to help people, as you mentioned, but also developing those relationships. Like that feels to me just like a very cool part of like it's more than medicine it's actually sort of seeing generations of families and helping generations of families yeah i think you hit it right on the head jake i think that's exactly it it's the longitudinal relationships that really are core of uh, family medicine and of primary care in general um, i remember the relationship that i had you know with my pediatrician uh, in the area growing up dr warren uh, who practiced in north wilmington uh, i remember our, my family physician that i had in karachi in pakistan when i was very young um, and I remember these folks as being part of the fabric of our lives and not just uh, technical advisors or, um, or, or physicians whom we just relied, to, uh, relied on when you were sick. 
my uncle perhaps more so than others. And I think there were generations of family medicine physicians uh, and internists in, in Delaware and pediatricians who practiced like that and still practice like that. There are folks today who practice like that, who have generational uh, depth with their patients and communities. And a place like Delaware, that's of course going to happen. Uh, we all have the privilege of taking care of all strata of society. So yes, that was what what attracted me. Um, it was on the one level, it was the ability to to be able to be part of the fabric of people's lives and have the privilege of of participating in that and taking care of them. On the other hand, is why I went to general medicine. Partly also was I wanted to know just enough about um, a lot of different things that people were impacted by. Even growing up in any family, one one has folks who present with certain health conditions. And I didn't want to be the person who said, oh, I am this specialist, therefore, that's my area of expertise. But, you know, I want you to go to, you know, so-and-so for this condition. You know, I wanted to be the person who could deal with a variety of different conditions and deal with the general uh, the general public, the general medicine uh, level of, uh, of medicine. So uh, for me, that was a really important piece as well. I'm curious as what residency was like for you and just the, I think a lot of times in life, regardless of what field, there is a level of imposter syndrome, just feeling like, I don't know, just you may or may not belong. And I was just wondering if you had any of those moments working with more experienced professionals um, that was intimidating for you and maybe how you may have overcome that. Sure. No, thank you. That's a good, it's a great question. I think uh, it's human to suffer from uh, so-called imposter syndrome. In fact, it's not even perhaps a syndrome as much as it is part of the human condition, right? And I think that happens to all of us. It doesn't happen just professionally. It happens in a variety of different ways. Uh, when we work with uh, folks who are, say, underrepresented uh, in medicine due to whatever background, they may be from a apparent uh, apparent, um, you know, um, a conventionally racial majority background, but they may have come from a background where they're the first of their generation to go to college in their family. Um, that is, that can also lead to uh, a, a certain feeling and anxiety. You could be from a minority community uh, where traditionally we don't, for example, attract a lot of African-American males into medicine. And that can also lead to the same level of anxiety. You know, as a, as a person of color myself, I, you know, I've always felt that I've been extraordinarily privileged as well to have that perspective and um, yet not to at the same time be limited by it. And I think Friends was a foundational piece in in in, in that as well. And also the fact that I sort of had a global upbringing. And um, so I don't think I was particularly susceptible to so-called imposter syndrome to begin with. Um, but I think in medicine, a field which you enter with such a huge amount of information and where the method of teaching frequently is the so-called Socratic method. Um, although I have pointed out to, to my colleagues that the true Socratic method means leading the learner to the answer in a way that prompts them to get the answer themselves, not just to, to pepper them with difficult questions. Um, but, you know, much of, much of medical training and perhaps the field of law as well, which is my, my sister's field, is, very, is to some extent like that. So you have to learn even as a perhaps more um, uh, more reflective and introverted individual that you'll be put on the spot frequently and that will be part of the training. And the reason that we do that is because people's lives are at stake. It is genuinely important to get it right. And medical education has evolved a lot. 
we now recognize we can train the most compassionate, um, intelligent, um, uh, amazing physicians without having to make the training part of it torturous. It can be rigorous. It doesn't have to be torturous. It can be kind, but it can also um, have a great deal of uh, intellectual heft behind it. We used to confuse, I think, at one time, the fact that it had to be difficult for it to be worthwhile. And that's not always the case. I was fortunate enough when when I got into a variety of medical schools, uh, I chose to go up to Vermont. And uh, I've all, I'd always liked it from from visiting up there. We didn't have any really family connections up there, but I chose to go to medical school up there. And I really enjoyed the philosophy of medical education up there as well. It was a small school, kind of like like Friends in that respect, one of the smaller medical schools in the country. Um, my graduating class at Friends had 62 people. My medical school class had 92 people. And um, so it was a nice environment. But I chose to stay on for residency there as well at the University of Vermont, partly because of the very strong emphasis on primary care and family medicine in the state, and partly because I truly love being there. And I really like uh, states of community like Vermont. Not to say you can't get them large states, but I like the idea of community. It was difficult at times, of course. Uh, as I joke with my med students now, Residency in medical school consists of you figuring out a hundred ways to say I don't know to a variety of questions. Because as educators, you know, I'm one of them now, our job is to figure out where somebody's depth of knowledge lies and kind of plumb the depths of that and figure out, okay, here's where that 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 boundary is, that threshold is. Now I need to educate and teach and help them get to the next level. But that can be sometimes a slightly painful process. But I have to say, I really enjoyed medical school among my colleagues and peers. I enjoyed all the specialties. I enjoyed delivering babies. I enjoyed doing uh, surgeries. I enjoyed being in the emergency department. I had a brief flirtation with the field of trauma surgery because I really enjoyed that piece as well. Until my uh, until my trauma surgery uh, mentor said, Khan, you belong in family medicine. You can't let go of the patient. I said, uh, yes, sir. Uh, and he was right. I, I had difficulty uh, letting quote letting go of the patient and and following them through the life course, and so it was. It's been a fulfilling educational journey. I have to say, I enjoyed most of it. I have also this interesting ability to fall asleep pretty much on command. Um, as anyone who's been with me on a plane flight knows, that by the time the plane is taxing, I'll probably be asleep, and it's um, uh, one of my very few uh, talents in that regard. But when I was on call, I could probably catch 20 minutes and, uh, you know, uh, every third night, typically we'd be on call at the hospital. And, uh, you know, we might be up all night, but I could catch little uh, winks here and there. And I, I had some strategies to get through that. But I enjoyed it. It really, I approached it with the idea of learning and um, openness and humility. It's easy in medicine to have humility as a trainee because you don't know anything. So it's easy to uh, to be that person and uh, just get the most, extract the most out of the experience because if we don't do that, our patients suffer. And if we do, then our patients will benefit. And I think that's kind of the core of why we should get through that rigorous training. I understand there are some details here that like you can't get into, but I, I'm curious as to, you know, the first time that you maybe helped a patient in sort of the healing process, or you solved a medical challenge. Can you just describe what that moment is like when you're taking all of the practice and hours of studying and actually seeing the results unfold on a patient. Yeah, it's a great question, Jake. I think uh, the medical details, some of this actually 
can be to some extent discussed because some of this work has been has been published as well. There are many interesting experiences that that come up. As you know, my training is in family medicine, but I also had the good fortune to uh, to rotate at the Hospital for Tropical Disease in in the London in the UK, which is one of the foremost hospitals for seeing lots of interesting conditions that affect the developing world. And w- one of my areas of focus from my public health training also is global health. So I've done some interesting you know work in that area. Um, in a fascinating family connection, the same hospital I rotated at, my uncle did one of his residencies there as well many, many years ago. And one of the folks who was my mentor there in London was a fellow resident with him. Um, so some of the stuff I've seen has actually been been there. I think seeing folks who suffer from conditions that we are so fortunate to have eliminated or controlled in the United States I think is eye-opening every time. If I go to Pakistan, for example, for work, and you see folks affected by malaria, something which is essentially unknown to us in the United States, although we did have a case of traveler's malaria, malaria and a return traveler, that we wrote up for the Delaware Medical Journal, which my uncle actually and I co-authored when back when I was a medical student um, many, many years ago. So we see some conditions here, but we're so fortunate that it's so rare we write them up. We don't have hundreds of thousands of them, but malaria exists as a mosquito-borne condition because we have controlled stagnant water and conditions of that sort. Uh, cholera is a condition that exists in many parts of the world, a condition of uh, unsafe water and sanitation, uh, which exists in countries all over the world, but certainly in Bangladesh and parts of India. So the f- good fortune we have by providing safe water and sanitation, essentially universal vaccination for childhood conditions, and focusing on reproductive health and choice-based access to reproductive care. Those are key things that I think we, uh, in the largely in the West, have been able to do. And we, when I see them, I'm, I consider ourselves so fortunate. Open, drinking from a tap, something I will, I, I will never, you know, never kind of get over in a way. Because uh, so many places in the world you can't do that. Kind of want to tap and drink from that. It's amazing. Um, the other major determinant of health, by the way, as, as most of us know, is universal health care. That's one of the key things in there uh, that despite every other developed country having done it, the United States has not has yet to embrace. But, you know, that comes full circle when you talk about individual patients. As a patient I saw uh, saw in Vermont, and uh, the patient who came in is a, is a young man, and he came to my clinic one day, and um, we were chatting about uh, what, what had gone on with him, and he said he'd been in the hospital for an extended period of time. And I noticed that he had a small hole um, it just below just below his Adam's apple. And I said, oh, did you have a, uh, you know, a, tra- a trach at some point, a tracheostomy tube at some point, which is typically a tube he- meant to help people breathe in the intensive care unit, perhaps, when you cannot establish a- another kind of airway. And he said, yeah, you know, um, my family was actually affected by uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. And that immediately took me back. I had taken care of this young man and his family in the ICU at the University of Vermont Medical Center about a year ago. I was on call that night when the entire family came in. Vermont, as you know, is a very cold state and um, furnaces do get backed up sometime with the snow outside and carbon monoxide builds up inside the house. Can And that's a danger of some of those older furnaces. This family had come in with carbon monoxide poisoning. He wa- he made it uh, through for that, but I cared for him for over a month in the ICU and the whole story kind of came back to me. His neurologist and I, who worked on this case together, we actually wrote this up in a medical journal as well. As a, as a case report of carbon monoxide uh, poisoning and surviving that and to come out of it 
and to essentially then walk into a primary care office and to your family doctor's office and to receive primary care ongoing. It was, I think, simple and profound moments like that. I can't claim to have solved any great you know, medical mysteries, um, but I think the approach to taking care of the patient and how the patient is linked to the environment and broader health policy and why that matters, that really is kind of the core of why I do what I do. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that story and just giving us a little bit of insight as to why you do what you do. As someone that has a lot of responsibilities and, and, and various jobs here, I wanted to touch on a role that you have as the president and CEO of the Delaware Health Sciences Alliance, which is a collaboration between the four major medical institutions in the area. How would you best describe this specific role? Sure. Again, I would describe that role in the context of the work that we do. Um, the alliance was formed between these four anchor institutions um, in and around the state of Delaware, and it includes Thomas Jefferson University, which is one of our two partner medical schools uh, in um, uh, for Delaware. Delaware is one of four states in the country which does not have a within-borders medical school, but we have two long-standing and historic partnerships with two medical schools in Philadelphia. So they are, quote-unquote, our medical schools, Thomas Jefferson University's Sydney Kimmel Medical College and the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. This partnership between these four anchor institutions was set up about 15 years ago to facilitate research collaborations and connections. And since that time, it's actually grown to include other uh, member institutions as well. Bay Health, BB, uh, Delaware Technical and Community College, the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, the Delaware Academy of Medicine, the Delaware State University. Those are uh, all members, along with Nemours, Christiana Care, the University of Delaware, and Thomas Jefferson. So we're very fortunate. This really allows us to collaborate. And that's something, as I hope that you've heard from me, is I've always loved doing. I've always loved collaborating with people to figure out better ways of doing things. Now, at a very micro level, it simply means efficiencies of how we do things. If we want to conduct a research project that affects, say, children and adults in the area of asthma, this is a perfect collaboration. We can get together the children's hospital, the adult hospitals in the state, the medical schools, and really kind of look at that issue together as, as a team. If we want to educate the next generation of physicians for Delaware, we can track them through this, educate them at, you know, the undergraduate institutions, go to medical school and come back to work with the health systems. A perfect arc. It's a nice partnership to, to have that. But at the macro level, the even the federal government recognizes the value of this partnership. We have two large grants in Delaware, at least two large ones from the National Institutes of Health, which fund this kind of collaborative. They fund not just one institution, but several together to do work to impact the lives of Delawareans. Our annual conference is, in fact, coming up on uh, uh, on May 8th in uh, Dover. I'm going to talk a lot about that work as well. So my role is really building those connections, facilitating collaborations, uh, making sure that we set, uh, set a vision in collaboration with uh, my board, which is the CEOs and presidents of these institutions. And I get to work with some really smart individuals, hear their perspectives on the future of healthcare, and how collaborating across, across these institutions can help us do things together and not compete separately. So I think that's um, that's it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity, frankly. Most of my role is is learning, and I think that, uh, that is really facilitating connections. As the founding director of the Global Health of Residency Track in Family Medicine at Christiana Care, what was your vision for that specific program? Sure. 
It's a similar role to the one that I had at the University of Vermont, and that's the role that I had when I first came back to to Delaware. And now several very smart colleagues um, have taken up the mantle of that, including my colleague, Dr. Anna Phillip in the Department of Family Medicine. Honestly, global health is is local health, and it really is the health of all people, how, how it's interconnected. The health of uh, farm workers in Sussex County um, is linked inextricably to the outbreak of um, of bird flu um, in other countries. There is one degree of separation between uh, local health as we see it and global health of other countries. Uh, we have uh, uh, COVID-19 too as evidence of that as how uh, conditions are just a plane right away. I think educating ourselves and our colleagues about the about two things. One, how interconnected we are and how important it is to learn about the conditions, not just medical conditions, but actual life conditions of people around the globe is super important. I think the second piece is that we that interconnection should drive how we do things, how we construct policy, how we work in the field of public health. And medicine is the action arm, really, of public health, right? That's where we folks come to to, to get healed and to, uh, and to, and to prevent uh, disease. Public health is the prevention arm. That does all the work in the environment to make sure that folks don't get sick. Vaccination programs, um, sanitation programs, things of that sort, all those conditions that you and I don't have to talk about today. The smallpoxes and choleras and malarias and polios of the world, which unfortunately afflict other places. That's really what the global health track was and is meant to do, is educate our learners about the broad diversity of uh, health conditions and of the lives of people around the globe, including right here in Delaware, and how it impacts their medical practice right here. What's fascinating to me about you is like, in addition to your work as a family physician, you've also served in a variety of roles, um, managing like initiatives to further medical research in Delaware, improve patient experience in our healthcare system, and incorporate global health perspectives into the residency program. So I'm just like, why has that been so important for you to take on these additional roles and responsibilities like within the community? Well, sure. I appreciate that. And thank you. I, you know, I personally don't think of any of these as quote unquote accomplishments or uh, impressive. I have learned from many, many people who've done this kind of work before is that, you know, you do the work that's important to you. And I've always shied away even from the term leadership. Um, I really see it as doership. You know, you do something, you you find a gap, you you help fill it, you try to make life better for, for folks around you. That's really it, honestly, at the core of it. I don't have much more profound to offer in that area. Um, I I suppose to some extent that, you know, I like variety of the, in the kind of work that I do, but all that has to have a purpose. And the purpose broadly is to try to use whatever, you know, meager talents I might have to try to bring them to bear to... Um, to benefit folks around us. That's frankly the core, it sounds idealistic, but that's the core of medicine and healthcare. And there are many, many people across the state, across the country who model that in ways much more effectively than I do. I am awed by their commitment to the work that they do uh, and the community. They don't get the recognition that they deserve, but the average community health worker, for example, has an incredibly tough job and a very, very important job going sometimes door to door to convince folks to even get vaccinated or to uh, take care of moms and young children and to put in place health policies that affect them. Folks who run our programs in our high school, um, such as our gay-straight alliances, uh, such as our LGBTQ programs, um, that is difficult and important work. And they don't get recognition and they may not have, you know, titles that always get them uh, on, on TV and in interviews. But that's a really important work. So part of what 
honestly why I, I also do what I do is to maybe use whatever platform that I have sometimes is to be able to amplify the work that smart people are doing. And again, to help facilitate that. Medicine and healthcare is always a team sport. And I kind of learned that from 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 the get-go. So um, that's, that's probably as, as, as best of an answer as, as I have in those in that area. I really think what you said about finding the gaps and filling them really like spoke to me. Um, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess like a follow-up to that question is what current gaps are you working to fill uh, right now just in, in your current work? Yeah, I think there's so many areas that we can continuously improve in and frankly, also areas that we are doing well in that we need to maintain going forward in the future. Delaware is an amazingly unique place to work. We have the ability to impact the lives of our neighbors through better healthcare, through better prevention, and through better connections and community. We have made great strides in that area, but our community and healthcare and research are not yet completely connected to the level that they could be. So that's, I'm not sure if that's a gap, but it's certainly an opportunity. But again, thinking about filling that that gap, as I mentioned, that big research conference that's coming up, guess what? That's actually called a community research exchange. It's not, not just a research conference. Uh, my aim as one of the co-chairs of that conference is now, it's uh, boy seventh year running uh, in Delaware, is to use our, um, uh, our funding from the federal government uh, to advance research by including community. Uh, you know that of the uh, you know 150 or 200 folks that are expected to attend, half of them are actually going to be community members. This is a research conference where we have this high representation of the community. Delaware has been recognized at the federal level for being a leader in community engagement. Our programs at Christiana Care, for example, we engage the community in cancer outreach. We engage them in cardiovascular outreach, in community health, because we realize our job is to keep the community healthy, not just to take care of folks when they're sick. So those opportunities exist right now. We have areas in minority health, uh, which we want to work on even more intentionally. We have areas that we want to work on in urban health, in, in, in violence, in homelessness, in poverty. And we're making strides towards that. Some of that, you know, we can always blame other people for, right? The environment is this, the federal at the federal level, this needs to happen. But in Delaware, we've never been, I think, a group of complainers. We're, we're a small state, we're a state of neighbors. And I think we kind of roll up our sleeves and go to work and say, here's what we can do today to impact that. And that's why I really enjoy being in this kind of environment. At the top of this interview, you talked about Dr. Brown and their impact on you in the English classroom, about Terry McGuire's impact that he had on you when it came to the Whittier. And you continue to write as you are the editor-in-chief of the Delaware Journal of Public Health. You have authored 90 peer-reviewed journals and have authored and co-authored four books on global health. What is most enjoyable about the writing process for you? The research process, the results? Yeah, well, first of all, my, uh, you know, my mother was the one who really introduced me to the love of reading. And I think that's people who love to read typically like writing as well uh, and vice versa. And uh, I still have books that she gave me when I was seven or eight years old. She introduced me to Shakespeare, introduced me to literature. Uh, and uh, she was an English teacher, is an English, was an English teacher herself, is still very much here uh, in North Wilmington. And uh uh, so I, I got the love of reading from her. When I began to write as well, it was, of course, in, in school. What I loved most about it was, well, two things. One, in in fiction, the ability to free oneself from the fetters of reality to some degree and to be able to envision uh, envision something that perhaps was in some ways a better world. And that's also a, a driving force behind my professional work. But also in nonfiction, to be able to tell stories of people who do not frequently to have the ability to tell their own. 
And I think that's traced its arc. That philosophy has traced, it's traced an arc through a variety of things that I've done. All the global health projects that you mentioned, whether it's working on the on the book, The End of Polio, or working on the SARS book, uh, Behind the Mask, uh, or any of the other things, those are nonfiction, but they tell the stories that needed to be told. I've been, again, very fortunate to work with smart folks. My my friend and colleague, Tim Brooks, who's a lead author on those on those books, uh, he's a, a Vermont public radio commentator. We met in Vermont, and uh, he and I founded this uh, program called Writers Without Borders, which you may have heard about it's about maybe 15 years ago. And our job was actually to encourage writers from settings such as developing countries to help tell their stories, and we would coach them. And myself as a physician and, and a neophyte writer and him and his experienced writer and a teacher and an academic could together partner to maybe help, especially scientists, tell their stories. As if you've ever read the book, The Hot Zone, if you've ever read the book, uh, Flu, uh, by Richard Preston and Gina Colada, respectively, those books are just fascinating nonfiction tours de force. You know, Jared Diamond's books, um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, any of Stephen Jay Gould's books. These are scientists who write in 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 scintillating and exciting prose, which capture the imagination as much as any work of fiction can. And the, But those are real stories and impact our health. So that's why I became particularly interested in that. Um, one aspect of love of writing I carried through was when I was at the Whittier, when my friends Matt Meyer and Andre Amund ran the ran the paper. Um, you know, I had a couple of columns in that. One was a a column about cars, of course. One of the themes that's run through my my life and my work has always been a love of mechanical objects and working on cars and really getting into that aspect of things. And I wrote a a, a, a column called Khan's Corner, with a K and a K. You know, very clever for that age. And uh, a friend of mine remarked recently, he said, you know, unlike what you, Jake, what you're saying, he, he said, um, you know, you had really haven't done much new in the last 30 years, have you? I was like, well, uh, you know, I, I guess not, you know, I'm still, still here, still lo local yokel and do the same things and uh, putter around with, with cars. And I, I guess not. He's like, no, really. I mean, you, you've been writing the same column for the last 35 years. I remembered all of a sudden the cons corner because for the last several years, I've written a, a column for the Delaware Academy of Medicine, DPHA, called Conversations, The Conversation. And of course, it's the conversation for your listeners. It's K-H-A-N. Um, again, an awful dad joke in there. But I challenge myself in that writing, whenever I write that column, if you've read a few of them, to talk about healthcare, to talk about people, but also through the lens of cars. And it's an interesting creative writing exercise for me to be able to do that. I find many linkages between my passions and my interests and I've always liked integrating them. And I think there's a lot we can learn from different disciplines and how they impact healthcare and patient care. And in my case, one of those hobbies and interests happens to be car mechanics and things of that sort. Uh, but for anybody who has any kind of interest out there, I'm pretty sure you can link your passion. And if you're lucky enough, you get to live your passion as your career. So I've really tried to do that and try to express that through my writing. As as prep for this interview, I did read the March 2023 issue, and I have it uh, uh, right here. And now in hearing your love of cars, that actually makes sense as I was reading your piece and, and all the connections there. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I appreciate you reading it. As someone who might be going through medical school right now and know it's a lot of early mornings, late nights, and 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 maybe for those folks that aren't able to get that uh, quick uh, 20 minute cat naps in like you were, um, what advice might you give to those students who, you know, are either thinking about pursuing a career or are currently in the midst 
of pursuing a career. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Jake. And like I said, medical education has, I think, made so many strides in terms of empathy and humanity um, in the last uh, in last uh, several decades and certainly the last few years as well. We have a group called uh, the Arnold F. Gold Humanism in Honor Society. And uh, I recently was invited to speak to that uh, that group, the induction of that group for this year. And I, I spoke about how uh, empathy um, and uh, courage and how, for example, we embody those values here in our health system at Christiana Care, we call it love and excellence, how that is still the core and the heart of medicine. And um, the heart and the brain of medicine go very closely together. I want you to always remember that when going through those tough nights. Remember the purpose. Remember why we're doing it. Question the old ways of doing things. Try to make things better. And find allies and colleagues and mentors, of whom, frankly, there are a lot more than maybe they used to be once upon a time. And find folks to to relate to, to confide in, to speak with. This is a journey that's been trod by many people before, but aid gets better with regards to the hard work aspect of it. And but the other part is the hard work doesn't actually decrease. It just takes on more meaning and more purpose. It becomes more manageable. In some days, I have as early mornings and late nights as I did in medical school. Um, you know, last week was several days of uh, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., uh, but it's a different kind of work. But if you approach medical school and residency as that, your job, to learn, to understand, to appreciate, to care for people, and not to be intimidated by just the fact that you may not know everything, I think then folks will get through. But again, I think reaching out to each other is absolutely critical. I had a great support system when I was going through that process, whether it was local in Delaware, uh, it was in Vermont, or whether it was my family or friends or you know whomever it was. Um, you know, even my uh, you know uh, infant son at that point, who uh, I would take cat naps with uh, as as a baby um, when when I would come back from call, taking call in the hospital. Use the support network that you have; it's absolutely critical. And uh, remember, folks have gone through it before. It gets better. And it's a great privilege to be, I think, in this profession and be part of the learning opportunities. I wanted to know, what what are you most proud of? I know at the top, you talked about medicine and is, is really about filling in the gaps. And so I would imagine maybe you don't look upon your work as accomplishments, but I am curious as to, given all that you have done to fill in those gaps, what maybe are you most proud of? I will always be most proud of, I think, having connected to people's lives at some level. Having made even an individual person feel better about where they are in their life, I think it's those moments. I wouldn't point towards building anything in particular, but I would say the first person uh, who who was undergoing hospice care and who was... Um, uh, a terminally ill cancer patient, when somebody I cared for in the early parts of residency at the University of Vermont, someone who passed a few, you know, few hours later, but the past would, you know, me in the hospital with them at, you know, three in the morning and uh, uh, with the appropriate uh, care around them and their family around them and me being there as a small part of their journey and helping facilitate the journey and make it more comfortable. Um, I think that is a, that was a critical moment. At the other end of life, uh, delivering babies is a remarkable and profound experience. And I've always appreciated that. Um, my son's mom was uh, uh, brave enough, kind enough uh, to allow me to 
to help deliver our son. I'm very clear, you know, the mom delivers the baby. The the doctor is just there, you know, just there to facilitate the process. So I, it's not like I delivered the baby, but I was there to facilitate the process. And that was a remarkable and profound experience holding my son for the first time. Another delivery that I did, there was one in particular where the first time it happened was a difficult delivery. And we actually found that out in the office in the clinical office, and then we rushed her to the hospital. And then shortly, uh, shortly after that, I, I was happened to be there. And I, I this was as a medical resident, I was not an attending physician at that time. And I helped her, you know, help along with her team to help her deliver her baby. And she never forgot that I had helped follow her from the clinic, my primary care office to the hospital. And a year and a half later, I got a call from her. And I got a call saying, hey, so-and-so wants you to be the doctor and be their, uh, be their OB. I'm like, Okay, well, I'm like, I'm a family physician. I'm not an OB, but I, we do OB in the residency practice, so sure. And she said, you may not remember me. And of course, I did remember her. She said, I'm about to have another baby. And I want you to be the doctor. And um, it was a remarkable experience. So, of course, I, I went in. I, I'm pretty sure in residency, that was my month to do OB. But, you know, our program was very holistic in that way. I got to be this person's uh, OB and deliver the baby and actually take care of the baby as the baby's doctor as well as their family physician. So it's those kind of stories that, remind me of the heart and soul of medicine as much as for example when we i got the opportunity to work on the renewal of our large nih grant uh, a few weeks ago i'm on the steering committee of our uh, nih uh, grant called excel accel which again goes back to the conference research conference we're having in a few few days but that's now in its second cycle and it's composed of so many smart folks who are doing their best to make delawareans lives better and healthier across many institutions Christiana Care, Dell State, Nemours, the University of Delaware, Dell Tech. Uh, we have so many folks around the state who are doing that work. But working on that grant reminded me, this is why we do that work. When we work on these, when we sit in offices and you know, uh, uh, work on a seemingly administrative tasks, even that task has a purpose. And that purpose is ultimately to make lives, people's lives better. So whether you're on the front lines and you're delivering a baby or quote-unquote saving someone's life in the ER, or you're writing a large grant to help those providers do the same, it all matters. And for me, that's been truly important. And those are things I, I look back on. I'm not a big looker back, looker backer, if that's a word. Uh, I'm a, more of a you know, looker forward. Um, so I don't, frankly, sit around reflecting on, on, on things of that nature. But I do try to learn from things and how to make things better. And so for me, it's always about uh, what's new on the horizon tomorrow. How do we make things better? I have two more questions for you. And while we spent a lot of time talking in, in various ways about these two specific questions. I want to be direct. My first question to you is, what would you like your legacy to be in the field of medicine? Uh, as, as you could probably uh, predict from how I do things and how I live my life, I, uh, I don't have a concept of legacy. I don't think of it that way. I really want if there is something it shouldn't necessarily be attributed to me i have no interest in that i truly have an interest in things improving and systems improving and people's lives improving and um, if i could look back and point to folks that i've been able to work with and things that we've been able to do together and for even if one person can say you know what that interaction made my day a little bit better I think that if, if there's such a concept of legacy, if folks can just say, well, you know, that interaction with him made my day better and that interaction with him made 
at a grander scale, made the lives of people better in some way. I would like that to be the case, but I would equally like that not to be attributable to one person because it really honestly, in some ways, undermines the work that is done off teams. I know we're used to seeing buildings with names on them. I know we're used to seeing things like, you know, I did this, but it's never an I. We all know this. We are supported by our partners, our kids, our families, our colleagues, everyone around us. And that's even before we get into the office and we're then we're supported by a myriad of folks. I have you know tens of thousands of colleagues that I've worked with at our health system. I have hundreds of thousands of colleagues probably across our health systems in Delaware and across the country who all work together to make this happen. So if anything I could say as a legacy, it should be remember that there's, you know, there's uh, the old single, there's no I in team. Although I joke, there is a me in team. So that saying doesn't always work very well. Um, but it really is the case that uh, we do things together. Taking care of each other is the single most important thing we will ever do. And that may not get its name on a building, but I think it's a pretty good approach to uh, you know uh, how, how to improve each other's lives. My last question, and again, you've answered this like kind of throughout, but maybe we can sort of take the medical like hat off if is like what is your why or another way to sort of reframe this is what is your purpose the why i think uh you know it goes back to most recently many many folks have actually written about this uh one of my colleagues have actually written an entire book about finding your why if you read simon sinek's book right but uh you know the the why is can be somewhat elusive sometimes and i tend to worry more days about the how than about the why. The why became set a long time ago. The why is, why else are we here? The why is, why else are we here if not to make life better for those around us? Why else are we here? It surely cannot be just to be live lives in siloed places of exclusively of self-interest. Even the so-called father of modern capitalism, Adam Smith, spoke about enlightened self-interest. Didn't speak about just getting yourself ahead. Our, my purpose, certainly, and I think most of us who think about such things, think about why, you know, what do we do on a daily basis to make lives of people better? How, do we, how are we the, the best, most empathetic version of ourselves and how to become better tomorrow? And how are we, and that can happen in any profession. And that's, that's the important part about this. One could be in any profession, uh, whether you're an educator, an interviewer, a physician, a podcast host, you can be your most kind and empathetic and smart self every day. And that is a huge gift to the world. And that's what we really need to do. That's really as, as simple as it gets around, around the why. In terms of purpose, I think that is the purpose is to live out the why and realize that um, we're not perfect by any means, but you know, if we don't try, we're never going to get there. Um, and uh, recognizing that our job really is to make lives of uh, lives of people better in every way possible. And every interaction matters. Every time we come into contact with a patient, a colleague, a friend, somebody at a coffee shop, um, every interaction matters. And, um, you know, but we have to be in our best places to do that as well. And equally, we're recognizing in places like healthcare, we have to take care of each other as professionals as well so that we can take care of other people. But the philosophy is still the same. You take care of people, whoever they are, whether they're sitting next to you taking care of patients or they're the patient on the other side of the exam table. So well said. Um, and, and thank you, Dr. Khan, for, for taking the time and, and chatting uh, with me today and, and sharing your friend's experience and also sharing your experience in the medical world. So thank you so much and, and certainly appreciate you. 
No, thank you, Jake. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. And Friends has been such an integral part of my life and journey, as I said, you know, pivotal in many ways that I do reflect on that every, nearly every day, pretty much in terms of what I do. So I, I really appreciate your time and in, uh, in creating this opportunity. So thank you very much.